Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There's been a lot of focus on credit markets of late due to some of the big disruptions that we saw in pricing and then the Federal Reserve coming in and saying that for the first time ever, it would buy corporate bonds through a separate entity financed by the Treasury Department managed by BlackRock, giving a a floor to a market that at one point was in free fall. Joining us now to talk about where the opportunities or potential future pitfalls continue to be is Mike Buchanan. He's Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Western as management with more than $400 billion of assets under management. Mike, I'm so glad we're getting a chance to talk with you. Can you give us a sense of a lay of the land? In other words, how effective has the Federal Reserve been in backstopping uh, the, the highest rated companies from facing default going forward? Uh, thanks, Lisa. And thanks for, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I think just the announcement alone um, that they would be for the first time ever, as you said, buying credit um, in one to five years, investment-grade credit. Um, the action itself, that hasn't even really taken place yet, but just the announcement of that has gone uh, a long way to uh, restoring stability in the market, restoring order in the market. Uh, you've seen a bounce from you know, where we were a couple weeks ago. But make you know, no, no, no confusion here. March was a brutal, brutal month, um, second-worst month ever for the high-yield market, um, worst month ever for investment-grade uh, corporate credit. So we've had a bounce, um, but when you look at valuations where they are, um, you know, still look, at least on a historical basis, quite cheap. Um, and I think the actions, uh, not only that the Fed of, of buying corporates, but the CARE Act, the accessibility for corporates to uh, access 2% loans, um, as well as just the, the overall stimulus and relief package. I think all those things have gone a long way to bridging uh, a, a gap to hopefully what will prove to be a, a, a turning point in this, in this horrible virus. So, Mike, how do you guys just you know, take a look at the market here? I mean, I know you guys have been in the fixed income business a long time. I mean, are you, do you tend to just step back and, and, and let the market play, or you try to go in there and try to find some opportunities? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're always looking for opportunity, and in in markets like this, um, even if you're not outright adding risk, because of all the dislocations, there's always relative value trades that you could be doing. There's always, uh, you know, one company uh, issuer you could sell to fund the purchase of another one that perhaps you have a higher level of conviction in. You think that offers better risk-adjusted returns. Um, so, you know, the, these dislocations, um, you actually have seen volume, trading volume increase. Um, so you hear a lot about illiquidity, and, and markets have become less liquid. However, the amount of inquiry, the amount of desired trading is up substantially. Um, and we're trying to take advantage of that. We're, you know, looking all over, both in high-yield and investment-grade credit, and as well as other spread sectors, just to find the best opportunities um, but I think all this, you know, you have to start with that high level of, you know, what, what is your view on the path of the virus? Because we know that's going to dictate how we emerge from this, this quarantine and, and shelter-in-place economy. And by association, just how rich or cheap risk assets currently are. 
let's let's stick with the concept of market liquidity for a second and unpack a little bit of what you just said. There is a lot of concern around the trillions of dollars of triple B rated debt. It's investment grade uh, rated debt, but at the lowest tier, the potential for it to get downgraded to junk, thus uh, igniting forced selling on the part of investment grade bond managers. We have seen some fallen angels, pretty sizable ones recently. How concerned are you about that pressure creating some fire sales, creating a lot of downward pressure on prices in the investment grade space and frankly also in the high yield space as those uh, names try to get absorbed into the pool of debt that's existent? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're seeing firsthand the, the early phases of that with, um, you know, with certain issuers that are very, you know, almost $100 billion that's going from investment grade credit into high yield credit uh, in April alone. Um, and what um, you typically see, and this isn't always the case, and I think this time, you know, could certainly play out different, but investment grade holders are, are proactive. They don't just simply wait for the event of the downgrade or index inclusion. They um, are always looking at, um, okay, what do we need to do over the next two weeks? What do we need to do over the next month? So oftentimes you see uh, selling that actually uh, occurs prior to these uh, issuers going into the benchmark. So with uh, what we saw over the past couple weeks is some of those fallen angels that were going in this month actually hit their lows a couple weeks ago, and you started to see some high-yield buying. Um, I think it's really important for uh, for investors to be looking at relative value. So, you know, Western Asset, we have two different teams, investment grade credit and high yield credit, but they're very cohesive. They work together. And the idea of comparing relative value for a fallen angel and, and looking at it relative to what we see perhaps in the in high yield market, that could give us a good uh, template to work with in terms of, okay, do we want to buy now? Do we want to wait until it goes into the index? Um, so there's there's a lot of dynamics at work there. But again, I think that risk that you highlighted is very real, and it's not just for corporate credit. Um, the longer we're in this type of uh, shutdown economy, um, you know, that has real ramifications for for municipal credit, um, for sovereign credit. Uh, so there, there's a lot of ways to look at this. There's a lot of things to think about. And again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's how long um, are we going to be in this type of economy, and when will we start to see some improvement in the path of the virus? So, Mike, let's just kind of go there to that backdrop. A lot of Wall Street firms out with some very dire GDP numbers quarterly this year with the second quarter being particularly ugly, but then some have a kind of bouncing back in what might be called a V-shape uh, recovery in three and four. What's kind of the backdrop that's, that underpins your outlook there at Western? Yeah, I, I think we would agree. I mean, it's you're seeing everyone trip over themselves to downgrade growth forecasts for, you know, for the for the second quarter. Um, it, it's going to be ugly. We all know that. Um, you've you've seen a virtual, uh, you know, halt or drop in demand to almost nothing in certain industries. So the second quarter numbers, you know, early third quarter, um, you know, are going to look pretty brutal, either in, in first quarter as as well. Um, I think the Fed and the Treasury have gone a long ways to bridging the gap. I think they've bought time, um, and that's really important. I think the way that the market's priced right now, 
Um, there is probably, I would say, cons- it's hard to really gauge, you know, what consensus view is, but I, I think it's generally that, um, you know, the virus is brought under control by late second quarter, perhaps early third quarter. Um, you call third quarter maybe a transition quarter as people start going back to work. And then by the fourth quarter, um, you're, you're starting to get some of that bounce from pent-up demand. So we know that the time between now and then is going to be pretty ugly. And I think, you know, again, the, the Fed and the Treasury, they, they've done, uh, right. policy in general has done a great job of bridging that gap. Right. Mike Buchanan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts. As always, Mike Buchanan's a Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Western Asset Management. They have $460 billion under management, mostly in the fixed income side. They are based in Pasadena. So I think what uh, Mike was suggesting leaves a little bit more of a U-type recovery. And I think that's kind of maybe where the market's evolving from a V to a U, uh, hopefully not to track. an L. <laughs> I, I, I can't keep track. Are we in a W? How about a C? Right. Exactly. So we'll see. But uh, interesting, but that's clearly people trying to just get a handle uh, kind of on the path of the coronavirus and the timing associated with it, because uh, that will obviously uh, drive where the uh, kind of how the economy is able to open up again on the other side. Given all the uncertainty that we have, and certainly as it relates to timing of this virus and the impact on the global economy, we welcome Peter Kenny, founder of Strategic Board Solutions. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you know, give us a sense of kind of how you're viewing markets here from a 30,000 foot view level. Yeah, yeah, Paul, good morning. Um, you know, first of all, interestingly, um, first day of Q2. Um, S&P is down 2.92%, um, and it seems to be holding the 2,500 level, which I think is extremely interesting uh, because given all of the negative news and given the, the negative breadth of the market, to be holding at uh, what could end up being a very important technical level is significant. Uh, of course, the Dow, the NASDAQ composite and the S&P are all lower, and global markets are lower, and clearly Q2 is shaping up to be a very, very tough quarter, at least for April. Um, but so far, the markets are, are doing better than, frankly, I was expecting this morning. Peter, I think a lot of people are thinking that Howard Marks' latest uh, memo kind of outlined how there's still a lot of optimism baked into current valuations and equities. If you just look at, for example, the multiples that are baked in here, I'm wondering, there seems to be a push-pull here of the money being pumped into the system by central banks globally and, frankly, by governments globally, mixed with the idea that we have a complete global shutdown in production and activity in an unprecedented way. Can government money overwhelm that and be the predominant driver here? Well, that, that at the end of the day, that, that's it. You just put your finger on, on the real the conversation is government money government liquidity, whether it comes in the form of fiscal or monetary policy, is it up to the task of really addressing in an efficient manner the risks inherent in a market that is in the stages, uh, early stages of a global shutdown? So, I mean, investors, markets, the global economy are all being held hostage by this COVID-19 pandemic. And the federal governments, and not just in the United States, as you accurately point out globally, are doing everything conceivable to address this shutdown, this this tightening up of credit. Um, There really is no other option. Um, That's all we can do and hope that in time that what is being thrown at this finds traction with investors. Investors find opportunity in that. And 
begin to once again take that it you know take on that sense of there's risk worth taking in the market i think we'll find that and oddly and in a very counterintuitive sense of things this morning the fact that the s&p has remained at 2500 in spite of the fact that it's traded fractionally lower on and off all morning is is significant because it's saying it's telling us that there there is a bit of a risk appetite in the market as counterintuitive as that may seem well, Peter, this is sort of the, the the theoretical idea I've been struggling with for a couple days now, this idea that you have governments around the world printing cash, printing money as quickly as they can through their central banks and through their government spending. And yet inflation expectations are coming down. In the past, this has been consistent. However, asset inflation has been real. And I'm wondering at what point this will trickle into, at the very least, asset price inflation yet again. Yes. Right. Well, frankly, I I think that policymakers on both sides of that equation, fiscal and monetary, are are looking for inflation, whether it be in asset inflation or otherwise. Any inflation would be welcome, frankly, and expected, given every form of economic modeling. This level of cash generation and liquidity being forced through the system should absolutely should provide for some sort of inflationary lift to markets. That's the idea. Do we get it? I think we do get it. Lisa, I think we do get it. But there is a drag, there's a lag between fiscal monetary policy and accelerated liquidity being pumped through the system and markets and investors willing to step out of the risk off and into the risk on and start taking advantage of that opportunity, because it is opportunity. All right, so Peter, if you are willing to look past to the other side, where do you think investors should tread first? Okay, so I think there are two basic theses. You have to sort of get your head around looking past this. First of all, is it a V-shaped or is it a U-shaped? I think it's something in between, uh, but I don't think that this lasts longer than three quarters in terms of the ability of the economy to to find real sustainable, even if it's marginal, but sustainable economic expansion. So I'm actually optimistic on the other side of this. I think there's two basic themes that you can go with. One is growth and the other is a, a less growth centric and more of a um, dividend centric, very, very um, low beta sort of uh, portfolio. I like both. I tend to be on the on the former rather than the the latter in terms of I tend to be more of a growth investor. Yeah. And I think there's huge opportunity um, in cloud, huge opportunity in cloud, huge opportunity in, in retail uh, or online. And I, I've remained very, very convinced that that's a big part of the future for investors. Peter Kenny uh, of the Strategic Board Solutions founder joining us from New Jersey. Really insightful. A lot of push-pull cross-currents at a time when a lot of people are flying blind. This is Bloomberg. Well, as the coronavirus continues to spread and shuts down large parts of the economy, one of the questions is, what's going on in the world of real estate? To answer that, we welcome Bess Friedman. She's the CEO of Brown Harris Stevens based in New York City. Bess, thanks so much for joining us. So what is going on in the world of real estate? Has that completely shut down as well? 
Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Hi, Paul. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Um, you know, it, it has. I mean, we, we had a really we closed March and the numbers were very good for March, but that was business from a different market. And now because, you know, agents cannot show properties, um, well, you know, the market has completely slowed, hasn't completely halted because we're still able to do some closings and we're still, you know, agents are still getting calls from, you know, consumers. But it has slowed down incredibly, yes. And we expect it to slow further into April. Bess, heading into this, the New York City real estate market was already slowing. We saw declines in prices pretty much across the board, particularly the luxury sector and the larger apartments. And I'm just wondering how much this is going to just accelerate those declines. Yeah, I think this is definitely accelerating those declines. Uh, you know, for speaking about new developments, I mean, all of those, every project is stopped. Uh, they can't continue work. They can't do, sh- you know, showings. The sites are closed. Um, so I think that it's going to take a little while for it to pop back. Um, but I think that's just being aggravated by all of this. So, Bess, <clears throat> given where, I mean, interest rates are historically low, um, but the reality is, I mean, this is, are you concerned that this calls into question New York as a real attractive place to own, own real estate, to live and that type of thing, given that we are one of the epicenters? No, I mean, listen, this is not permanent. Remember, the virus is hopefully a temporary thing. The question is, when is the peak, which people, experts are saying, and I'm listening to the experts, that we have another week or two until we hit the peak. And then once we get this under control, the uncertainty goes away and we're back to business. I mean, this is not forever and ever. I mean, this is a virus that needs to be, uh, we hopefully will have some sort of cure or vaccination, something that helps. But right now, people are concerned for their lives. And until we get that under control, you know, you're not going to have calmness. And consumer morale is low right now, but it should be. If people wanted to go out there and shop, I'd be worried. You know, it's not... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Lisa. No, it, it's fine. I mean, Bess, if, if you take a step back, I, I've talked to a number of people who are wondering about a flight from the cities, basically saying, look, if we're going to get pandemics, if this is going to happen again, why do we want to be in a concentrated area with lots of people who are breathing all over each other? Why not go somewhere where there's a lot of open space? You got a yard. You can get away from people, social distance all you want. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you expect that kind of flight away from New York City in response to this as sort of an existential threat? I mean, listen, you you guys lived through 9-11. I was here as well. And there was it for a few months after that, people were afraid. They're like, should we leave New York City? I'm afraid there's going to be another bombing. We're going to, you know, we're a target. And what happened is came January, the market went crazy. People believed in the city and they still believe in the city today. We are the most resilient city in the world. And I don't believe people are going to want to just move to the suburbs because of this. We love to be together. We need each other. We just need to get it under control. So I don't think that that's going to be the result of this at all. We love really to be. Don't. We love to be together. Just Paul, don't breathe on me. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. So, Bess, no what do we? What, are we, what do you think is going to happen from the international buyer? That's been such a a big supporter of the luxury market, particularly in New York City. You know, I think that has that had slowed down anyway, as Lisa had indicated. Um, but I think, you know, I'm hoping that morale will come back over the summer. But, you know, that has been a big question mark for everyone because we have seen a slowdown of that for over a year now. And um, it's been more domestic that's been buying the high end luxury stuff. And so, 
you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's for me. It's anybody's guess at this point. I don't know. There's also a question how quickly the uh, New York City housing market will recover. Do you have a sense of that? I mean, I understand we have to wait and see what the virus brings in terms of just the uh, the virology of it. But do we have a sense of once we have that kind of under wraps or there's some kind of solution, how quickly it'll take? Yeah, I mean, I think second quarter is going to be very uh, challenging for all of us because all the, you know, business is slowed and people aren't going to be writing much new business. And then hopefully third quarter is when we start to see, I think economists have been talking about this sort of V-shaped recovery, you know, where things kind of jump, you know, drop off a cliff and then pop back up. I'm hoping that we're going to see something like that because we had a lot of pent up demand and I'm hoping that we pop back up come, let's say, September after the summer, that the market gets back to its regular business. Best, give us a sense of how things are in the mortgage market. Uh, we've seen some real stress in, in the mortgage market over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, they, I spoke to uh, uh, a colleague at Wells recently, and he, he told me that that environment is also very challenged. He's not really originating many loans. You know, people are it's slowed down incredibly. Um, he's still giving advice to people because rates are really low and people are doing some refis. I mean, now's a good time to do a refinance if you'd like. But to originate a new loan for a new purchase has really slowed down. And I think that's going to be challenging for a lot of uh, people in the mortgage industry. Definitely. The one plus is that the Hamptons, um, as Lisa had mentioned, I mean, because People do want to get out of the city because of the density and they don't want to be close to each other. You know, that rental market, our environment there has been crazy. We can't keep anything on the market there. People, everything is, has been rented. So that's one plus, I guess, in this environment. Yeah, actually, I've been hearing anecdotes of people who try to rent a house out there and it just the rates are absolutely outrageous. And I'm just trying to figure <laughs> out, is that going to have lasting power or is this also just sort of a temporary knee jerk, get me out of here for the moment kind of thing that will fade as time goes on? Yeah, I think it's you're seeing a knee jerk, like everybody is trying to get out of the city. And if they don't have a place, you know, upstate, they want to go to the Hamptons, or if they have a house there, they're going there. So I think people are trying to take a little bit advantage of the fact that there's a real demand to have like a house, especially if you have children. Um, If you're stuck in a very small space, we all know that that could be challenging. Wheelbarrows. If you if you do wheelbarrows yes. up and down the hallway, it's really effective. And also forcing them to run up and down the stairs. Amazing. I do, Best that. Way- I do that as well. I do that as well. Help. Best- yeah, jumping jacks, 100% Alexa's uh, workouts, seven-minute workouts. Highly recommend. Best I Friedman. I do that, too. I do that, too. Three sets every day. Yeah, go. I do them with my kids. Best Friedman, Chief Executive Officer of Brown Harris Stevens in New York, joining us to talk about the real estate market. It is amazing, the creative ways that uh, that you have, to, right. you have to try to make sure that they get out their energy. I'm telling you, wheelbarrows are great because they also don't create noise for the neighbors downstairs. Uh, so it's, it's great. It's for the upper body really good yep. hold their legs make them walk <laughs> up and down yep. until they can't anymore it's great one of the themes of this entire coronavirus induced shutdown that we're experiencing globally has been the shift and the acceleration in the shift to the cloud to online business transactions and delivery and the question of amazon's role very much front and center is they become a lifeline for so many households to just get basic food and other staples joining us now alex webb a bloomberg opinion columnist in london and alex there's a question here as we look at amazon's role 
role, which they have made sure to maintain and said they were going to hire a lot, many more employees, of whether they continue on their premise of delivering cheaply and quickly at a time when they are actually the main way that people are getting supplies that they need. Yeah, the issue is here that there have been a significant number of complaints from their employees about the working conditions in their fulfillment centers. We've seen a strike, albeit a small one, um, in Staten Island. Um, we've got Whole Foods employees. Whole Foods, of course, are a unit of, of, of Amazon, sorry, um, you know, essentially striking as well. They're actually claiming the sick days, but it is a, is a protest. And um, there have been strikes in Italy. Um, not restricted to those countries. There have been complaints elsewhere. And their, their argument is that we're fulfilling a, a, a crucial service right now, but actually we're not being protected as well as we think we should be. And the, the, what it means to us is that we often don't really question how we're getting these deliveries. You know, we, we, hit a, we click something on Amazon, um, Amazon's website, and the next day um, it arrives on our doorstep. And often that has a human cost, and that cost has probably been potentially been accentuated in the current situation. So, Alex, do we have a sense of how Amazon is performing just in terms of the basic functions of delivery right now? They have sort of restricted their warehouses to um, only, um, particularly in, in crisis-hit countries like Italy, to only taking essential goods. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not delivering essential goods, but it means they're not replenishing them in their warehouses. So it might be harder to get hold of some of those things. And ultimately, you know, there is a lot of expectation from the um, analyst community covering the company that there will be a significant uplift in, um, in demand for its e-commerce offering. And that seems to be um, reflected in, in the statements from the company, which, you know, Jeff Bezos, CEO, has said they're going to hire 100,000 more employees in this period to try to meet demand. You know, I was struck by a Wall Street Journal story yesterday talking about how the employees at Amazon have so much more leverage than ever before, and not just Amazon, but UPS and a lot of the other businesses that are on the front lines and where employees actually still have to go to work and face off with the uh, potential of getting the virus. And it talked about how Amazon now gives its employees in the U.S. and Canada $2 more per hour. Now there are more sick leave benefits. There is a feeling that the shift uh, toward better employee treatment will lead to consumers having to pay more. How much more are we expecting to look at? So I actually, I'm sorry, but I just fundamentally disagree with that premise. Uh, if anything, Amazon is in a far stronger position than it, 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 right now than it was um, a month ago because there are so many more unemployed people. And that means they have far greater scope you know, they, as we saw with the guy who kicked up the the the, the, the fuss with um, Amazon in Staten Island, who you know was responsible for kind of rallying the protest, he lost his job because Amazon can just turn okay. around and say, "Well, we'll hire something else." There are 3.3 million people out of a job in the U.S. right now. You know what, Alex, I'm really glad that you're saying that because that is one side of the equation. They're the employee uh, that actually still is the employer that's having actually um, a hiring spree. At the same time, you are seeing them make more concessions to their workers to keep people coming in and you're seeing absentee rates climb. So at what point does that power shift back to the employees? I mean, the, the concessions they're making are temporary. They're saying we'll pay you $2 an hour. Um, I think at the moment it's till the end of April. Um, they're you know, changing the overtime pay as well. You know, th these are temporary measures which we don't know if they're going to carry on in the long term. Now, my personal view is that we 
as consumers are responsible here for actually perpetuating this. We, Amazon has done quite well in sort of grooming us to expect that stuff should turn up the next day. We don't ask about the cost. And, um, it, and Amazon itself can only really afford to do that because it has a, a cloud business which is hugely profitable. And that subsidizes the, the loss-making um, or low margins on the e-commerce side. But that's very hard for anyone else to compete with. You know, other companies do not have the benefit of that hugely profitable cloud business. Um, and yet, so we, they're, yet they're trying to compete with Amazon on the delivery front. And what we see is across the board, um, a, a reduction in the, in the kind of, uh, you know, rewards that right. their employees are able to get for their hard work. Alex Webb, thank you so much for joining us. Alex is a European technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us uh, from London. And Lisa, I think that's a great discussion you and Alex were having, just kind of who has the leverage here um, in the case of Amazon, you know, the workers versus Amazon. Uh, There's certainly a strong case to be made on both sides. Look, Amazon's already come out and said you can expect your deliveries to be delayed, right? Yep. How many people are, are protesting or how many people for, you know, Fresh Direct, another delivery service that's come under a lot of strain, are trying to look for other avenues because it's so overwhelmed that it can't actually deliver in any reasonable amount of time? It just raises a question, right? This leverage for the workers, is it temporary or are they going to be forced to continue, especially as we see the walkouts continue to percolate throughout the country as far as workers at Amazon? Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.